You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9 and 29 through 35. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were written on the first tablets, which you broke. But be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two uh, tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on the mountain uh, on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And Moses had finished speaking with them. He put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray now that you would indeed help us to understand your word. Uh, It is our desire to know you and to hear from you this evening. We pray that uh, my words would indeed be yours anything that I say that is not of you. uh, We pray that the people this evening graciously would quickly forget, but anything that is of you, uh, we pray, would settle into our hearts deeply and that you would transform us more and more into the image of Christ. And we pray all these things for his sake and for our own good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this afternoon. The sun is a little bit brighter uh, than normal. It's good. Have you ever needed a, a tool, but you just didn't have the right one handy? So you had to like use a rock or some other blunt object to like hammer in a nail because you didn't have a hammer there, or you needed like your fingernail to, to turn in a, a screw because you didn't have the right screwdriver, or you, 
You needed a stick to dig a hole because you didn't have a hand trowel there. These tools were all designed for a specific purpose. You could use the claw end of a hammer to dig a hole. You could do that. It would function decently well, but a hammer, the claw end of a hammer is actually meant to pull out a nail. You could use a screwdriver to mix a drink or to clean out your ear or something. It wouldn't go well, but you could. You could use a hand trowel to ice a cake. You could, but then when you actually have the right tool for the right job, the mission of the job actually becomes easier to fulfill to accomplish the goal. God has always had a mission for this world. He has always had a goal for this world. And that mission and goal is to fill this world with his glory. But not just to like open up a fire hose and just fill it. He could do that. But he has created human beings to be the delegated means through which he is going to accomplish his goal. He has delegated and created human beings to be the tool through which he will fill the world with his glory. In the beginning, he created male and female to be his little kings and queens, his delegated sub-rulers on the earth to join in on the mission of God, to tame the chaos, to increase the world's knowledge and experience of God's love, to fill the earth with his glory. And when humans participate in this role, they find themselves to be the fullest and most ideal versions of themselves. An ideal human and an ideal humanity. But from the very beginning, human beings, we have rejected this role. Later in the story of Genesis, God calls out a new humanity in Abraham, that he then called out the descendants of Abraham of this new humanity from slavery in Egypt where we have been thinking through in the book of Exodus for many, many months now, that they might live into this role, that they might be used as the right tool for the right project. Now, here's where this whole intro doesn't quite make much sense. It's not like God wants to like, keep reaching for human beings to use them in the right way, but he keeps grabbing the wrong one. Like, he went to Lowe's and he bought a hammer, and oh shoot, he really meant to buy a Phillips screwdriver. And if humans would just keep, would just be the right tool, then God could finally use them. If only he had made something better, even, than human beings, more useful than them. No, he made humanity in exactly the way that he intended. It's just that the hammer keeps hating that it's a hammer. It keeps wanting to turn itself into something destructive, like a bottle of poison or something, or even using itself as a hammer to destroy and not to build. We're nearing the end of Exodus here, but we're going to use chapter 34 to consider how it is the grace and it is the glory of God which transforms his people into an ideal humanity, into the right tool for the right project. So we'll think through this chapter in three sections today. The character of God, the covenant of God, and the glory of God. Perhaps you have no idea how any of what I just talked about makes sense or applies at all to this chapter, so let's get into it. First of all, in the verse, first nine verses 
of Exodus 34, the character of God. Chapter 34 seems to come to us at the end of the scene where we left off last week in chapter 33. Moses has just seen the contrails of God's glory after he was hidden by God himself in the cleft of the rock. And God tells Moses to get ready to come back up to Mount Sinai in the morning. Moses is to cut two more tablets on which God will rewrite the words of the Ten Commandments. The same words that he had written on the last two tablets that Moses had smashed in anger. The people and even their flocks are to keep great distance from the mountain. They are not to come near. Only Moses is to come again to be with Yahweh. And we learn in verse 5 that Moses gets even more of what he was hoping for and asking for when he asked in chapter 33 to, for God to show him his ways, for God to show him his glory. In chapter 33, he gave Moses a small vision of his glory, the after effects, the contrails of his glory. Here in chapter 34, Moses gets much more than that. Verse 5 says that God descends on the mountain in the cloud, and he meets with Moses. And then strangely, the Lord, Yahweh, and by the way, if you remember from way back in chapter 3, and we talked about this, whenever you see the word Lord in small but uppercase, all caps, this is your English translation signifying to you that this is the word, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, which he first gave and revealed to Moses in chapter 3 at the burning bush. But he says, strangely, the Lord, he proclaims the name of the Lord. Yahweh proclaims the name of Yahweh. He is reaffirming to Moses who he is. He is reaffirming that I am and will always be who I am and will forever be. He is unchanging. Like we thought about last week, he is impassable. He is faithful. And so he comes before Moses and then says this about himself in verse 6. 34, Exodus 34, 6 is the most quoted verse in the Bible about itself. This, the Bible quotes Exodus 34, 6 more than any other verse in the Bible. Here it is. God says about himself, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we'll stop there. Exodus 34, 6 doesn't just come to us in a theology textbook. These are not just like bullets on a list of descriptions about God. Especially in the Old Testament, what we know about the character of God comes to us in the middle of a story. God reveals himself to a people in real time and in real history, and then in his wisdom, he gives us theological retellings of these narratives that come to us in stories of their own that we might learn of God. Exodus 34, 6 isn't something that we wish would be true of God or that we could hope would be true of God. Exodus 34, 6 comes right after the horror of Exodus 32. God had come to Israel and he had covenanted himself to them and he had said right off the top, the very first two things that he wants Israel to know, that he wants them to believe and act upon, the very first two things he says is, do not have any other gods before me and do not make any carved idols. And then right away, right after this, Israel does exactly that. And their first attempt of religious worship. They go right back to their Egyptian ways of understanding, of their understanding of worship, which includes lots of other kinds of revelry, as we thought about and understood as well in Exodus 32. And it's in this context that, sure, after coming after the very real judgment against 
the 3,000 who were most brazen in their defiance against God, the ones who perhaps stood with their middle fingers up to the top of Mount Sinai, God responds in judgment against them, but then he responds in mercy and in grace. Being slow to anger, he abounds to Israel in steadfast love to them and in faithfulness. Still, after all of that, after his new bride has rejected him at the altar on the honeymoon, still, when human beings make wedding vows, like when is the easiest time for a new bride or a new groom to keep their wedding vows? In like the history of their marriage, like at the altar, like the wedding night, the, the five minutes or hour after the wedding or so, it's probably pretty easy to keep your wedding vows unless some like disaster is happening. Like all the plans are like the cake is melted or like there's trouble with in-laws or like, the best man made an awful, awful speech or something. Like, it's really, really easy to keep vows on the wedding day and on the wedding night. The wedding day is full of excitement. It's full of anticipation for the rest of their lives. It's probably the closest thing that any of us will ever experience to, like, living in a Disney movie or, like, living in a romantic comedy. That is to say, it is the, most, the closest thing that we will ever live to living in make-believe. It doesn't take long at all for us, though, to realize that we've married a sinner. It takes even shorter than that for our new spouse to realize that they have married a sinner. A person of selfishness, a person of self-worship, and that is the time that wedding vows are actually needed, are actually vital when things aren't a romantic comedy with like slow-motion life montages flashing before our eyes, when things are difficult, now, I've, I've never met an unhappy couple or a marriage that has ended in divorce where the bride and groom intended to live in unhappiness or when they were making their vows intended to end in divorce. Rather, it was small steps in the same direction in which they were walking before the wedding that they continued to walk in, now married. Small compromises, small difficulties that become then calloused and become ignorable, and now we're at a spot where hopeful and wide-eyed uh, brides and grooms could have then never imagined years later, or perhaps even more quickly than that. When Israel is entering into covenant with Yahweh, they cannot imagine ever leaving him. We will do all that you have commanded. We will obey, they say over and over again. You will be our God and we will be your people. But we know how that turned out. While they were wide-eyed and hopeful, though, when God enters into the covenant with the people in Exodus 19, he is not at all unaware of, of what is about to happen. He absolutely knows of their hearts. He knows that they are just overflowing with self-worship, with false worship. He knows the future and that they will immediately reject him. And yet he comes to them anyway and covenants himself to them in mercy and in grace, being slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love and in faithfulness, even while he is covenanting himself to them and when they are rejecting him and rejecting their covenant. And all of this should come as just enormous comfort to us, that there is more grace in God than there is sin in me. 
that it isn't my faithfulness to my covenant with God, but it is God's faithfulness to his covenant to me. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, we sang earlier. This is not just theoretical bullet point theology. This is real life experience and the reality of our great and gracious and patient God. We like verse 6. We like the beginning of verse 7. But then verse 7 takes a turn. He goes on to say about himself, God says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, this is very similar language to the language that we considered in the second commandment, so we won't spend too much time here because we did so in August. But this is absolutely not saying that God... uh, has like generational curses out for people. That because your, your grandpa Jack was some awful guy, that uh, he is, God is still out to get you or something like this. There are plenty of places in the Bible that just shows that this is not what God is saying here in Exodus 34. Deuteronomy 24 and Ezekiel 18 most clearly if you want to flip to those later on. But what this is saying, that each generation that rejects God including the second generation, including the third generation, even the fourth generation. God will hold each generation accountable for their individual sin, even if they were not the ones that were here present at the covenant uh, ceremony in Exodus 19, which helps us understand that we cannot blame our parents for our own sin. God will visit our own sin in the present on us individually. Certainly our Parents have, our grandparents, even our great grandparents, have lived and acted and loved in ways that have formed and shaped us generationally. And yet we are accountable for our own sin. It's helpful to know of these ways. It's not helpful for these to be excuses for our own sin. And yet, compare the numbers on either side of this verse. God says He has steadfast love for thousands, with the assumption meaning thousands of generations and yet judgment towards three or four. It is God's overwhelming desire to love and to save, which again comes as comfort to the Christian's soul, that I could never keep my hold, but he will hold me fast. So if you are in covenant with God through Christ, sleep easy tonight. Sleep with great assurance if you are united to him in his love for you through the work of Christ on your behalf, it is finished. God's anger and wrath against sin, just as we confessed together this evening or professed for the Westminster Confession, God's anger and wrath against sin are no more, and they are fully satisfied in Christ through his substitution on your behalf and through his offering of righteousness to God. If you are with us tonight, though, and you are considering the God of the Bible who has revealed himself to humanity, apart from Christ, I have no comfort to offer you. There is no assurance for forgiveness and for sin apart from Christ. I have no words of comfort and of hope for you. If you are not in covenant with God through Christ, I actually pray that you would not sleep comfortably tonight. That you would actually consider 
your life. Consider your soul. Consider your conscience perhaps speaking to you. The justice and wrath of God are very much not finished for those who are not in Christ, which is what we should actually all hope for, if we are honest. We should actually not hope that God would just excuse sin, that he would just kind of just gloss over or just forget about selfishness or anger or abuse or violence. We just all intuitively want God to judge all the sin out there while ignoring all of the sin in here. But God ignores nothing, and he knows all. And so the character of God is that of grace. It is that of mercy. It is that of love and of faithfulness and of steadfast love. And his character is also simultaneously that of holiness and justice, that he will judge sin and he will right wrongs. So this description of God, of his character, is one of comfort, and it is one of simultaneous warning. So secondly now, as we've considered the character of God, now the covenant of God. We're actually not going to spend too much time here in verses 10 through 28. Everything that is in this section we have already thought at length about for about, I don't know, 12 or 13 weeks Everything in this section we've seen before in Exodus. While Israel has rejected God and broken their covenant in his steadfast love, God is now renewing it. God gives Moses new copies of the Ten Commandments, and he reiterates much of the Ten Commandments here. He reminds Israel to keep feasts and festivals and remembrance, uh, to remember the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, and to keep the Sabbath. And all of this is to tell the people, to remind them again, to be singularly committed to him. God gives warnings that there are other gods out there, that there are other people out there. Do not be seduced by them. Now, in ancient polytheistic cultures, the reality of multiple gods, the reality of even regional gods, would be of no problem. They're all powerful in their own ways, so you might as well get as many gods on your side as you can. No big deal. Just make sure you get your bases covered. But God was calling Israel to be radically different in their monotheism, in their singular worship and commitment and faithfulness to God. And again, in the context of marriage, this isn't petty or like egocentric jealousy. We would all expect the exact same kind of covenant faithfulness from our own spouse. God, through Moses, is warning that these other gods out there, they are not faithful. They are not loving spouses. These other gods out there are actually more like pimps, out there to use and take advantage of you by offering protection, but then to just chew you up and spit you out. And so morning, noon, and evening, the people were to then pray in repetition, to remind themselves. They would say to themselves, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They were to remind themselves that God desires and demands singular love for their covenant God, the covenant God who has saved them and who is worthy of their love, who is worthy of their worship. 
And yet, as we considered in the first and second commandments, and then again in chapter 32 with the golden calf, we are tempted in the exact same kind of way to live our life with all kinds of divided worship, not singular worship. Maybe not in explicitly religious ways with idols and with temples, but in our love and our worship for money and comfort. Our love and our worship for approval and success and exhilaration and sex. All of these are no less religious pursuits and no less forms of idolatry. And so the words of Exodus and the words of Jesus come to us today with the same call toward repentance. The same reorienting call toward singular worship. You cannot love God and money, Jesus says. You will love the one and hate the other. Or blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they will see God. The Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard wants to find purity as heart, purity of heart, as when we will one thing. You are pure in heart when you are singularly committed, singularly willing towards one thing, not divided amongst our loves. But like Israel constantly through the day, reminding ourselves. We must remind ourselves of God, the glory of God, and our increasing love for him because we are divided creatures, distracted by all kinds of other lesser loves, but growing to appreciate money and comfort, growing to learn to appreciate approval and success, exhilaration and sex as pretty decent gifts, but as terrible, terrible gods. And so just like how some married folks after a period of rockiness will renew their vows, Exodus 34 is a renewal ceremony. It's a new wedding, a do-over of what happened in Exodus 19. He will be their God and they will be his people. Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights without eating and drinking. He is sustained by God supernaturally in his presence. And then he again then goes down to the people and Moses' media, mediatory ministry is one of just constantly going up and down and up and down, speaking to God uh, on behalf of the people, and then speaking to the people about God. And so finally, and lastly now, when Moses comes down, the people will see the glory of God. When Moses comes down off the mountain with the new copies of the Ten Commandments, he doesn't realize that his face is shining brightly. Now, we don't have any idea what this might have looked like, especially given the fact that Moses is a Middle Eastern guy with dark skin and likely a dark beard. It's not like me after I like go run a couple of miles and I get all like shiny and red or something. And that's like, his face is shining. Uh, this is certainly not Moses. But medieval and Renaissance, Renaissance artists likely had the right idea when they painted Jesus or they painted others with like the, the yellow halo, the, the orb of light from their face. Though the Hebrew literally says here that rays, his face was sending out rays. Not that his skin was shining brightly, but literally his face was sending out rays. And the word for rays is elsewhere elsewhere translated as horns, uh, causing Michelangelo to very incorrectly, Logan, you got this picture? Uh, can you see this? this is, 
This is, this is Michelangelo's sculpture of Moses, and he has horns, because apparently he wasn't too much of a Hebrew scholar and didn't understand what was going on in Exodus 34. Uh, this is Moses with the Ten Commandments, and he has horns. Moses did not have horns. Uh, there's no reason to veil that unless like, he's like, afraid of like, scaring the people like he's, he's become a fawn or something. Uh, but whatever he looked like, though, Moses' face is shining. Bright rays are coming from his face. And we're told the reason is because he has been in the very, very near presence of God. And the people are understandably terrified of this. Like, this is next-level sci-fi stuff going on. Imagine being at the foot of the mountain, and you see this guy coming down Again, I have no idea. We can use our imaginations, but his face just emanating bright, radiant glory. Like, who is this guy? What kind of experience must he have just gone through for him to be looking and appearing like this? He is different than us. So they run. They are terrified of him, even his brother Aaron. Moses, he calls them back, or he calls Aaron and the leaders to come back. And he gives them a short talk. And then in verse 32, all of the people, he gathers the entire nation to gather around and to listen all that he has heard from God. All of the good news of God's character and of his covenant, that he will go with them, that he will be their God, that he will renew their covenant even though they have broken it. And after all of this, Moses then puts a veil over his face. Like imagine or consider just uh, the traditional a traditional Middle Eastern woman with a veil covering her face where all you are able to see are her eyes. This is Moses. We read in verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, since Moses would continue to meet with God for the rest of his life, and because we're not told otherwise, we can assume that the people never again saw Moses' unveiled face, that he was hiding the glory of God reflected in his face. So what in the world is going on here? We've already considered throughout the book of Exodus that it's kind of hard to decipher when it is that Moses is doing something and when it is that God is doing something. When Moses speaks, he speaks for God. Is it Moses or is it God speaking to Pharaoh to let my people go? Well, it's both. God says he'll lead the people out with an outstretched arm, but whose arm is it that is always outstretched over the people with a staff? It's Moses's arm. Even in this chapter, God said in verse 1 that he, God, would write on the tablets, but then in verse 28, it's Moses who is writing on the tablets. Who is it that wrote on the tablets? Yes. In chapter 32, we thought about Moses being someone who was so in tune with the divine will that he gets wrapped up almost in a conversation within God, a back and forth that God is having with himself of whether God will be true to his character or whether God will be true to his promises. And so here in chapter 34, Moses comes down off of the mountain. And he's got a bright, shining face. Now, we've already got, from chapter 26, a category for the veiled glory of God. 
In the most holy place of the tabernacle, there is to be a curtain separating the people from the glory of God. And so now here, Moses puts up a little curtain over his face to separate the glory of God from the people of God. I don't think Moses' face is just kind of like holding on to the, the residue of God's glory, kind of like, you know, the glow-in-the-dark stars that you put on kids' ceilings that will stay, they'll stay a little bright for, I don't know, 20 minutes or something after the light has been in them, but then once they lose the, the residue of light, then they will no longer glow. I don't, that might be what's going on, but I think there's something more than that here. I think what's going on here is taking us very back, very all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created man and he created woman in his image. They are to be the earthly boundary markers of God's heavenly reign. Wherever there is a human, that thing points to God. Men and women are his delegated sub-rulers, his little kings and queens on earth who are meant to look like God, who are meant to act like God, who are meant to reign like God. The word image the same word for man and woman being created in his image is the same word that is in the second commandment. Do not carve images for yourself. Why, amongst all the other reasons, should Israel not carve images of God? Because they themselves are the image of God. They don't need images. They can just look around and see the image of God all around them. So now, like Adam, who walked and talked with God, Moses is being restored to his right role as one who looks like God, who one, one who acts like God, one who reigns like God. By becoming so close to Yahweh, he reflects the very nature and the very glory of God. Like a mirror, Moses reflects the glory of God to a blind or at least squinting world around him. Moses has been transformed into the right tool for the right job. And as Paul says in Philippians 2, when we, the new covenant people of God, are trusting and loving, loving God, when we are not complaining like the world, Paul says his people will shine like stars in the heavens, radiant, bright, by being transformed to his rightful human vocation, Moses is not like less than human. He's not becoming a lesser version of himself. He's becoming more human. By living and being with God, by submitting his will to God's, even more by merging his will with God's will, by walking in joyful obedience, he is becoming the fullest, most idealized and weaponized version of humanity. He is a hammer which is finally hammering nails. He is fulfilling his purpose. But we've got a problem still, right? The people, the rest of these images of God, are harmed or are blinded or are at least afraid of the glory of God. Moses alone is taking on this human, the original human vocation as an image of God. And yet, not only are all of Israel, but all of humanity are to be acting and functioning in the same way that Moses is. So enter Jesus. Now, this is not like, this is nearing the end of the sermon, so we gotta like somehow like point back to Jesus. It's not just that part of the sermon going on here. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses promises the people that one day God will raise up a new prophet like Moses. 
A new Moses will come who will function like Moses, a mediator for the people, who is so in tune with the divine will that he speaks for God, who will reflect God's glory, who will lead the people out of slavery. Deuteronomy 18, Moses says another one is coming. Now prophets will come and prophets will go in Israel's history, but never again comes someone like Moses until Jesus. And the gospel writers will go through great pains to show us that Jesus is the Deuteronomy 18 new Moses. Jesus, he doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Moses didn't hear. He does that in Matthew 4. And then what happens in Matthew 5? Well, Jesus goes up to a new mountain for a new people and gives them a new law. It is a, just a retelling of everything that we have just thought about in Exodus 34. Jesus speaks for God the Father. He is wrapped up within the divine will. He reflects the glory of God. He leads the people out of slavery. He is the new Moses. Last week, I mentioned Colossians 1.15, where Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. Just as Adam was created in God's image, just as Moses is being restored into the full version of being created in God's image, Jesus comes as the true Adam, as the better Moses. He is the one who has fully taken on the vocation as God's obedient and faithful son. He is the one who has taken on the vocation of all of humanity in perfect, in perfect love for God and in righteous ruling of creation. He has come that the image of God might be restored and renewed, not just in Israel, but within the entire world. In Romans 8, Paul is considering how sin, which came through Adam, but then is perpetuated in the world throughout our daily rejection of God, has caused all sorts of corruption, has caused all sorts of fracturing throughout the world, that the world was not the way it was meant to be, and humanity is not the way that it was meant to be. The image of God is not lost in humanity, but in our sin, the image of God is marred. It is tarnished. It is not the way that it was meant to be fully realized. And so Paul says that Jesus has come to work on our behalf. Just read through Romans 8. It's unbelievable the links that God has gone to, to now, by giving us his spirit, by allowing us to be wrapped up and drawn into the very life of the triune God, he works power through weakness and then gets us to the famous verse, the verse that uh, your great aunt might have cross-stitched on a throw pillow. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's not the end. This is not just that God uh, gives us everything that we want. That if you go through tough times, don't worry. There's something better on the other side that he's going to give you materially or something like that. No, it doesn't end there. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, purpose statement, conformed to the image of Christ, of his son, conformed to the image of Jesus, who is the image of God, who is the, very in, the entire meaning of life and the meaning of our very existence as a human being. The illustration that some of you have heard is that of a, an ice sculpture. But God desires to create all of these versions of humanity, the very image of God that looks just like Jesus does. 
that God is shaping and fashioning his sons and daughters to look like the firstborn, the older brother. And sometimes on a giant block of ice, a chainsaw is needed. And chainsaws hurt. Sometimes we need to be reminded that all things are working for my good, that I might look more like Jesus in sickness, that I might be conformed more and more to the image of Christ in difficulty, in loss, in death. More often than not, the day-to-day of our existence, throughout the course of the Christian life, the Holy Spirit is sometimes firing up a chainsaw, more often getting out a warm washcloth and melting away a rough edge to round out a shoulder. A little here, a little there, through his word, through his people, he is melting off the rough corners that we might live more and more like Jesus, that we might love more and more like Jesus, that we might live as the ideal version of ourself, the most joyfully content version of ourself. There's lots of Paul, lots of New Testament today, but in 2 Corinthians 3, perhaps go home tonight after the game is over, and as you're falling asleep, read all of 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul spends the entire chapter to reflect on the law, to reflect on Exodus 34, to reflect on Moses' veiled face. And his conclusion is that when we turn to Christ, when we behold his face, the veil over our own hearts, which separates us from God, which separates us from the glory of God, it melts away. We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into, what does Paul say? Being transformed into the same image, the same image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. Day by day, one degree of the ice, the rough edges being melted away, sometimes one day to the next being ripped off. And yet God, by beholding Christ, is transforming his people into the image of Christ. Or as John says, on that day when we see him, we will be made like him. And that is our hope. We will never be on this side of glory, a fully formed ice sculpture that looks exactly like Jesus does, but when we see him, we will. I want to end Exodus 34 today with a a paragraph from the screw tape letters that I've already read from at at some point in Exodus. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this great book called The Screw Tape Letters as a, a book of imaginary letters that some master demon is writing to his young demon apprentice. Um, so when screw tape says something about the enemy, who he's talking about is God, all right? Can we make that shift in our minds when we're talking about the enemy here? This demon is talking about God. And screw tape, the master demon, he writes this. It's rather an appalling truth. He, God, he really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on a miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We, that is these evil spirits, we want to make humans, 
We want cattle. We want to make them into cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and need to be filled, but he is full and overflows. Our war aim is a world in which our Father below has drawn all other beings into himself, but the enemy, God, wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct, where we are distinct sons and daughters of God, but that have been so united into the very will of God, experiencing life with God, with singular worship. And that is, it is the grace and it is the glory of God that transforms his people into an ideal humanity, into the right tool for the right project. This is a community project, though, And God is shaping and forming his people individually now as a larger body, as a body that together we begin to look and act and feel and worship more and more like Jesus together. So let's keep on. Let's keep on encouraging one another, walking with one another, praying for one another, confronting one another, being patient with one another as he indeed, day by day, transforms us more and more from one degree of glory to the next. Let's pray that he would. Our Father, we are realistic about our sin. We pray that you would help us see it for what it is, that we are robbing ourselves just of joy, of contentment. We are robbing you of glory that might be known by our neighbors, by our friends, by our children, by our spouses, by our roommates. God, we pray that you would actually do what you have promised that you will do for your people, that you will work all things together for our good, not for our daily happiness or for our carefree living but that you will work all things together for our good, that we might look like Jesus, who himself did not have a carefree life. He was a man of sorrows and had a life full of weakness and pain and a life that ended in death and in suffering. We would expect no less as we are his people. So we pray that through this pain, through suffering, through loss, even through just daily difficulties and anxieties, that you would be using these as opportunities to grow us more and more, shape us, we pray, more and more into the ideal human, to the image of God, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do this for your glory. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.